Equity Mates Media. This is The Dive. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's been a lot happening in the world of satellite internet recently. In late July, two of Europe's biggest satellite internet operators, France's Utilsat and Britain's OneWeb, announced a merger. Why? They said they wanted to better compete with Elon Musk's Starlink. We're moving the joint company of OneWeb and Utelsat much more into the high-growth tech space area. And then, weeks later, Starlink was in the headlines after one of their rockets crashed down to Earth and landed in a paddock in rural Australia. Nick Miners stumbled upon what he thought was old machinery or even a tree stump on his Numbla Vale property. Up close, it was a very different story. Thankfully, no one was hurt. But it got us thinking. For an industry that is sending thousands of satellites up into the sky, there is very little said about it. And we had lots of questions. It's Monday, the 22nd of August. And today I want to know, what's the go with satellite internet? To do this, I'm joined by the co-founder of Equity Mates and my colleague, Alec Renahan. Alec, welcome to The Dive. Hey, Sasha. How's it going? Um, Look, I'm pretty daunted about this topic today. I'm not going to lie. I had not given much thought to the satellites flying about above my head until that piece of rocket landed in Australia recently. So I'm excited to hear about this one today. Yeah, it is a fascinating topic. Um, We've all probably used satellite internet or benefited from it, but most of us have never really thought about it. Yeah. So we've got a few things that we want to understand today, the scale and the current status of the industry and the companies that are operating in this space pun intended. And then let's chat about this European merger and then Starlink space junk and the questions being asked in the wake of these incidents. So there's a lot of ground to cover today, Alec. Where do we start? I think where we have to start with satellite internet is throwing out everything we previously thought about satellite internet because it's been around for decades and it's built itself a reputation for high costs and unreliability. It hasn't been the preferred choice for anyone who had a choice when it came to internet. But that's not what we're talking about today. Let's take a step back. There are two main types of satellite internet, geosynchronous equatorial orbit or non-geosynchronous equatorial orbit, which includes low earth orbit. Two main types, uh, geosynchronous orbit satellites have been around for about 25 years. They're the ones that have been plagued by high cost and poor performance relative to the options that we have on Earth, i.e. broadband or 3 or 4G. So geosynchronous orbit satellite internet never really took off. However, Sasha, recent rocket launches, we now have reusable rockets thanks to SpaceX and Blue Origin. Satellites are getting cheaper to produce and they can be produced in smaller and smaller sizes. And those two technological innovations have really opened the door to low Earth orbit satellite internet, which Elon Musk's SpaceX has got into the game with Starlink. And this form of satellite internet is said to be more reliable, faster and cheaper than their geosynchronous orbit peers, parents, (laughs) predecessors, whatever you want to call it. Can you give us some numbers to actually put into scale how different this is? So traditional communication satellites are roughly 36,000 kilometres above the Earth. Low Earth orbit satellites range from about 500 to 2,000 kilometres. So a lot closer to Earth. That means they're orbiting a lot faster, but it means that they can send and receive signals a lot quicker as well. Three, two, one, 
And from what I understand, when we talk about satellite internet today, that is what we're talking about. So I think the starting point for this conversation needs, why do we need it? There are so many options to get internet here on Earth. Feels weird saying that. (laughs) But surely we don't need to be launching thousands of satellites into space. Yeah, it is a good question. And I think to help us conceptualise our choice, there are three main ways that we can get internet. In cables under the ground, that's really your traditional broadband offering. Through towers, that's your 4G or 5G offering. And then via satellites like Starlink. So, Sasha, those are the three choices. Now, what matters when you connect to the internet? Well, what matters for me is that it's reliable. There's no way I could do my job if we couldn't have a conversation that was pretty uninterrupted. Then I don't want to be paying a fortune for it. It's just me. I don't want to have a skyrocketing bill and I guess yeah I want to be able to talk in real time so it better be fast as well. For most people they're the three things can I connect how quickly can I connect and how much does it cost to connect so let's use those three criteria and talk about the three options first of all cost setting up internet infrastructure is expensive however you do it launching satellites into space putting cables under the ground or building communication towers But strangely enough, launching satellites may not be the most expensive here. SpaceX and Elon Musk have said they expect to spend about $10 billion on Starlink. They're never noted for their accurate projections here. So independent experts have predicted they'll spend closer to $30 billion, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you put it into context, just Australia's national broadband network will cost over $50 billion. New reports tonight that the troubled national broadband network is another $900 million over budget. Whichever internet you get, you're going to be paying between $20 and $100 a month, depending on where you are. But this new version of satellite internet isn't massively more expensive than your on-earth options. Okay, so that's the cost aspect covered, which as, you know, a financial podcast we love to talk about. What about speed? So all of these options are fast and getting faster but 5G is going to be the fastest, apparently. Wow, that I didn't expect that actually. So what about reliability then and access? Because I think that's probably where my privilege came in a little bit is that I do live in a high density city area. So of course, broadband is going to be an accessible option for me. Yeah, so if we say cost, they're all going to cost about the same for the consumers and they're all pretty expensive to set up. Speed... They're all fast, but getting faster. Similarly, it's a bit of a push. 5G might have a bit of an edge. Reliability and access is where this conversation around satellite internet really comes into its own. So Sasha, for us in cities, 5G is likely going to be the best option. But for rural and remote areas, 5G infrastructure won't make as much sense because the towers have to be so close to the devices using the internet. That's where satellite internet really will come into its own because unlike 5G where you have to build towers, unlike broadband where you have to lay cable, Starlink can really offer mass access, access on scale to areas that weren't previously able to get high quality, reliable internet. So the takeaway I'm hearing from you, Alec, is that we're going to be using a mix of technologies to access the internet in the coming years. There's no one size fits all being the best solution. Yeah, I think that's the the key takeaway here. Satellite internet will form 
a bigger and bigger part of the pie, but no one technology will have the whole pie. <laughs> and there is still a lot of the pie left. I didn't know this stat, but it really matters because only 60% of the world's population is connected to the internet. 40% still don't have access. In April 2022, the world crossed 5 billion internet users. So satellite internet might be the fastest way to quickly connect the remaining 3 billion, 3 billion people. It's just astounding. That's right, Sasha. For us in Australia and for most people listening to this podcast, by listening to this podcast, they have access to the internet. (laughs) We think of internet access as a given and it's become so important to our day-to-day lives, for our work and for our social lives and for everything. But almost half the world still doesn't have internet access and that is where satellite internet may be able to come into its own because we've seen some strange and novel ways to try and connect the rest of the world and the two companies that have really been on the forefront of this are the two companies that benefit the most from getting three billion additional internet users can i guess who they are (laughs) yeah please guess it's got to be google and meta maybe yeah the world's biggest social media company and the world's biggest internet search company both benefit from just there being more users out there So Google had Project Loon, where they tried to beam internet via hot air balloons. Uh, That project got shelved. The first 60 or so balloons we launched all burst when they got to altitude, which was very sort of disheartening. Facebook for years, for almost a decade now, has been operating a non-profit called internet.org, which has tried to connect more and more people. But Sasha, here's one thing that a lot of people don't know, but I find fascinating. Both Google and Facebook are getting into the undersea cable game uh, and that is to connect more and more parts of the world with giant undersea cables carrying internet essentially. These submarine cables crisscross the ocean before arriving at an anonymous looking building. It's called a landing station and it's the end of the line for the submarine cable before the data continues its journey over land again. They're both separately in competition with each other running projects to lay undersea cables to Africa to connect the continent. And for context, Africa as a continent is the least connected. Just 36% of people are online at the moment. So Google's Equiano cable will run from Portugal down along the Atlantic coast to South Africa. And Meta's To Africa cable will run also from Portugal down past South Africa, fully encircle the African continent, cross Egypt, and then connect back to continental Europe. So when you compare satellite internet to these two efforts running undersea giant cables, it quickly becomes clear how satellite internet might seem like a lot of effort, but it may be a more efficient and more scalable option to connect millions or perhaps even billions of people quickly to the internet. Alec, that's fascinating. You never really think about undersea cables and the visual image of these two giant pipelines running underneath Portugal down to the African continent is just amazing. So I think now we understand why there's a need for satellite internet. Let's move on to who, but first let's take a quick break. Welcome back to The Dive. Today, we're talking about satellite internet and the companies competing to launch these services. Headlines were made after France's Utelsat and Britain's OneWeb merged to allow them to better compete with Elon Musk's Starlink. So I'm assuming by reading this, that means that Starlink is the biggest player? 
Yeah, Sasha, definitely the biggest player. Not the only player, but here's a stat for you to really contextualize how big Starlink is. According to McKinsey, Starlink operates more than 40% of all active satellites in Earth's orbit. I mean, there are a few interesting stats. The, the combined power of all the satellites is over five megawatts. They're capable of outputting about 30 terabits per second of uh, data. And um, uh, we should have uh, global connectivity or everywhere except the poles. Okay, and how many satellites are up there? About five and a half thousand, five thousand five hundred and ninety-one, at least when this report was written, and Starlink operates about 2,400 of them. I know space is big, but that does sound pretty crowded, so I'm starting to get an idea about how much noise there is up there at the moment. Well, in total, Starlink wants to launch over 30,000 satellites. And that's just one of the players competing in the low Earth orbit space. So, yeah, space is about to get a bit more crowded. Wow. And they're just one of the players. So can you give me a bit of context for the rest of the industry? So if we think about what other companies are trying to get in the uh, low Earth orbit satellite internet game, we're going to need a shorter way to say that. Britain's OneWeb, a low Earth orbit satellite operator uh, who, as you said, just merged with France's UTELSAT which is an old school geosynchronous operator. So together they want to combine the old technology with the new technology. But there's Amazon, Sasha, the retail giant. The rivalry between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk is heating up again, this time over satellite internet. Uh, Amazon is launching their Project Cooper to uh, get thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit. There are a few companies listed in America, Global Star and Iridium. Canada has a privately owned company, Kepler Communications. China has a state-owned company, China Aerospace Science and Industry Corp. And on top of all of those companies, there are also a lot of the old school satellite operators, the geosynchronous satellite operators that are now looking to get into the low Earth orbit game. Not just uh, crowded up in space, crowded in the competitive landscape as well. So are there a lot of customers? Are they fighting for huge market share? Who are the people using this internet? It's early days, but Starlink does have subscribers. They have about 400,000 subscribers globally. So that's not small. In 2019, Elon did estimate that Starlink would be bringing in between 30 and $50 billion a year in revenue once fully scaled up and operational. That's going to require a little bit more than 400,000 subscribers. But hey, if he can do it, that'll certainly help him get to Mars. The visual I'm getting is we have thousands of satellites flying above our heads right this second, but also that there's plenty more planned with the opportunity to quickly connect billions of people around the world to the internet. So that's the positive story. But there is a negative. Just how many satellites can we fit up there? And then what happens when they fall down? Because some of them have been. I want to talk about space junk and visual obstruction. So let's start with space junk because that one really terrified me earlier this month when I heard that there was things falling out of the sky and just landing in random paddocks. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Space junk is falling to Earth more often from Chinese rockets breaking up over Malaysia to SpaceX debris crashing onto farms in our state south. Yeah, now, Sasha, when we talk about space junk, uh, we should probably separate it into two different categories, space junk in space and space junk falling to Earth. Both are risky, but for different reasons. So what we saw with SpaceX was space junk falling to Earth. And it wasn't from a satellite itself, but it was from the SpaceX Dragon capsule that was bringing 
astronauts back from the International Space Station. So as it was re-entering the Earth, bits of it came off and some of those bits landed on a farm in Australia. You know, if I drove my car and bits of it fell off, I would get in a lot of trouble for that. So I don't understand why the rules aren't the same from space. Well, according to America's Federal Aviation Administration, typically this kind of debris burns up in the atmosphere and if it does fall to Earth, it falls into the ocean, so it poses a minimal risk to public safety. Obviously, this time it landed on a farm. Luckily, no one was hurt. We should say this isn't the first time debris has ended up landing on a farm. Last year, a piece of a different SpaceX rocket landed on a farm in America, in Washington state. But look, for the amount of satellites that are being launched, the amount of rockets that are being launched these days, it is a pretty rare story. And to confirm what you said earlier, this is from the launch vehicle. This isn't the actual satellites just deciding to pull out of the sky. That's right. From the rocket as it leaves Earth or re-enters Earth. We haven't really seen satellites fall to Earth as much. A lot of them would burn up on re-entry. But that does lead to the second part of this conversation around space junk, which is space junk in space. Because we have to remember what satellites are doing up there. They're circling the Earth at thousands of kilometres, tens of thousands of kilometres an hour, and there's a lot of them up there, and we have to hope that they don't run into each other because if they do, that's not a good result. And as more satellites go up there, we are seeing more close encounters. So research from the Astronautics Research Group at the University of Southampton in the UK found that Starlink satellites alone are involved in about 1,600 close encounters every week. And that's about a half of all of the close encounters that happen between satellites or between satellites and space junk every week. When satellites do crash into each other, they create space junk that makes it more treacherous for every other satellite circling the Earth. And then, Sasha, the doomsday scenario is called the Kessler effect. Now, this is named after the NASA scientist, Donald Kessler, who raised the possibility that if space becomes too crowded, there will be collisions that then trigger a catastrophic chain of reactions of debris that creates more collisions, that creates more debris. You you get the point. So... uh, That's not about space junk falling to Earth, but space junk can be dangerous in space as well. No one knows what the tipping point is or anything like that, but um, as more and more satellites get launched, it's a concern. You just used some of my favourite adjectives that I like to hear about in close succession. Doomsday, catastrophe. I mean, and that's only just one problem, which is space junk. The second is visual obstruction. Can you explain this concept to me? So astronomers are leading the fight against low Earth orbit satellites. The International Astronomical Union has created the Centre for the Protection of the Dark and Quiet Sky from Satellite Constellation Interference. And they might need a catchier (laughs) name. (laughs) But basically it's been set up to protest against low Earth orbit satellites because they disrupt optical astronomy, i.e. observing through telescopes, and radio astronomy, detecting and studying radio waves from space. Sasha, basically right now, Starlink satellites are photobombing a lot of photos of space. It's like you have a beautiful Monet and then you point, you paint these lines across the Monet. Um, You can still sort of see the Monet behind, but you're missing all the information that the lines are painting over. Now, Elon has been receptive to this uh, after astronomers complained 
about the amount of sunlight that was reflecting off Starlink satellites. Elon asked his team to make them less reflective. But the fact of the matter is the more satellites that are up there, the harder astronomy is going to be. Gosh, Alec, this subject was so fascinating. I think we could talk about it for hours, but I think we better leave it there for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Or if you have more questions, then get in touch with us. Those links in the show notes below. If you're listening because you've been referred, welcome. We have a growing back catalogue that's well worth checking out. Our last three episodes, we've talked about the world of streaming, WeWork's Adam Newman's new billion-dollar idea, and Domino's pizza failure in Italy. There really is something for everyone. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at thedive.businessnews. You can contact us by email. That's thedive at equitymates.com. And subscribe wherever you're listening right this second so you'll never miss when a new episode drops. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alec. Thanks, Sasha. Until next time. The Dive is a product of Equitymates Media. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of The Dive acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The hosts of The Dive are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.